about the second coming, that last song we sang is my favorite Christmas hymn. It's uh, one of the few set, uh, the only one I know of set in a minor key, that dissonance is, uh, is important. It's a song that, uh, you know, reminds us that God's promises often take centuries and millennia to arrive. Now, our family devotions are centered around uh, and have been for a year, the Adventure Bible, and we're right now in a great place for the Christmas season. We've been dealing with Jeremiah, and we've been dealing with the exile, and we've been dealing now with the coming back into the Promised Land. The Persian king has granted his people, the people of God, to come back to the Promised Land. And I've had the great opportunity to remind my children, God's promises are sometimes slow in coming. But they always come. I mean, think about Jeremiah. Have you ever thought about the misery of his life? A prophet of weeping that faced all types of gloom and destruction. And yet he was told by God. And the message was placed in the bosom of his belly so that it burned in his bones and he had to preach. He didn't want to. He had to. Tell them. This is why it's happening. But God will keep his word. And what happened? The Persian king said, you can go back to Jerusalem. Seventy years passed in exile. And then God said, you can go back. And eighty years passed after that. Eighty years passed before the temple was rebuilt. They went back and built their homes, and they could not finish the temple, and they refused to finish the temple for fear that the outside world would oppress them if they did. And then God sent word and sent help through Ezra to re-raise the law in the land, and they built the temple. And then the great project of Nehemiah to rebuild the walls. And then over 400 years of silence. We could think of the generations that died. In exile, in return, in rebuilding, and they never saw the Christ. And then God fell silent. I've been telling my children, sometimes God's promises take millennia to come true, but they always are true. Some of you have lost hope. And you cover it with this nice facade. You show up at church, you do the due diligence of a Christian. Listen, God has not forgotten his promises to his people. God has not left us without hope. God has sent his son. His son has died for us. His son has paid our price. His son has given us new life. And he is at the right hand of the Father as an advocate, barring the path of Satan. No accusation stands in the courtroom of God against you, child of God. Not one, and he's coming. It may take millennia. You may die, your children may die, your grandchildren may die, your great-great-grandchildren may die, but God will keep his word, and we have hope. I love this time of season. Say season of year, this time of the year. Remember, God keeps his word. He is a faithful God. Let's just praise him now. Let's just pray together. Father. As we open this time of 
teaching from your word. It is so easy to be people that are discouraged, that are defeated, that look around the world and see the slide and drift of moral decay and say, God's not winning. Oh God, convict us of our lack of faith. Gift to us greater faith. And when we stumble, Lord, hold our feet on the way of righteousness by your Son. And we say, come, Emmanuel. Make your home in the new heaven and the new earth. Deliver this world from sin. Renew and regenerate the creation. Resurrect our dead bodies and give us life forevermore. That's our prayer. Come. Come now and visit us during this preaching time. Help us to deal seriously with our hearts, to focus our minds, to be endowed again with a newness of your goodness in teaching and preaching that cannot be replaced because this is the method by which your gospel goes forward. Help us to believe that in our hearts, to receive your word, your teaching this morning through your spirit and through your word. Amen. Take your Bible and turn to Proverbs. We're in the book of Proverbs 6, chapter 6, beginning in verse 20 and going through chapter 7 today. I have two announcements. I, I was out during the beginning, so if you've heard this before, just never mind me. The offering box had to be moved today because we're going to take communion later. We're going to move the offering table to the front with communion because of our Advent setup. But the offering box is still on the premises. <laughs> it's in the foyer. So as you leave, don't look and say, that's oh, a free day, no giving today. <laughs> More Christmas presents. No, we need the money. Foyer in the back. <laughs> offering box, was that shameless enough? Offering box, we'll take it. Uh, and on the giving note, the budget has been prepared. The deacons have worked hard. The elders have worked hard. That's prepared. And, and the, it's on the back of Bannister. As you're heading out the double doors in the back, there's, there's only 25 copies of a summary, graph, and chart. It's really well put together. It's easy to understand. And a, and a full detailed printout of the proposed budget. That's being proposed to you so that you can vote on it on December 16th. We will vote on it. And it will be electronically emailed to you tomorrow morning. So if you don't want to grab a hard copy electronically, every member will, should receive uh, an email with that content. And if you have questions, please ask. December 16th, we will vote on that budget. And I just want to encourage you, you're giving the first quarter, if you remember, we were almost $20,000 behind our projected giving. And now we've closed that gap. At the end of last month, we were 4000 behind for the year which is actually ahead of every year that we have record of, okay? That means you responded. You have been faithful. I want to commend your giving. You're giving to the Lord. But I want to encourage you not to quit. Don't think, well, now it's last month of the year. I can just relax. We've got to finish strong. We've got to go to the end of the year. We have, uh, we, we have a projection to over, go over the budget. What a testimony. Just think of that. What a testimony to the goodness of God and the provision of God that during an economy that's declining, the church is giving more. And that's a beautiful picture of the gospel and where your hope is, where your hope is. And I am proud to say that you are giving and you are a giving people. Thank you so much. And so we, we're proposing this new budget, and it's an aggressive budget. 
It's not a declining budget, but it's not, we don't think, overly aggressive. So I, I want to say those things. Finally, as a way of announcement, the Angel Tree. Angel Tree is a ministry we support. It's a ministry of the Prison Fellowship, ministry of Chuck Colson, and we do it every year. Prisoners are unable to buy their families' presents, their Christmas presents for their children. So they send their request into the national ministry, and then they dole those out to the communities around the nation. Our community gets those names, and we're part of that. I think we have 27 names, something like that, this year. 20, somewhere in the 20s, right, Chad? 21, okay. 21 children. Some of them are multiple family, I mean multiple children in one family. But we have 21 children we need to get Christmas presents for. And the list is there for you. You don't even have to think about it. You pick it up. The list of what they need is right there. You go to the store, you pick it up, and you, and you deliver it, okay? And the, all the contact information there is an easy way to serve people in need this Christmas season. I encourage you to do that. Young, old, families, individuals, everybody, pitch in here. Let's just, they're in the back, uh, uh, in the foyer again. Just go, I know it's going to be a busy place. You're going to be giving and picking up budgets and, and getting angel tree stuff. But let's just get all 21 children taken care of today, and, and that'll, be, that'll be done. It'll be a great, great thing. And I, I, would be fail, I would be failing not to mention also, it made me think of it, you gave to support 62 families having Thanksgiving meals at home this year. Grace Fellowship did. 62 families out of the 500 that were fed came from you in one offering, special offering, on one day. That's a blessing. Those families were cared for. They all heard the gospel. They were all prayed for. We had a team of people praying with them, encouraging them. They're the most needy of our society. 62 families fed for Thanksgiving. And you, you were a part of that, and I want to commend you for doing that. Thank you so much. All right. Enough announcements. Let's get to the Word. Proverbs 6, 20 through 7, chapter 7. It's a long passage. It's two speeches, but I've combined them because I'm not sure... You can stand two sermons on adultery back to back. And they combine well. They, they overlap. And actually seven is a picture of adultery. It's, an, it's a great way that, that Solomon could teach his children and teach Israel and then us, right? Because that's how it's passing to Solomon's sons and then to all of Israel and then through Israel and the recording of God's word it comes all the way down to us God's teaching us but it's a great pictorial of what adultery looks like in the in the seventh chapter so we're going to kind of have the principles in chapter six and then the picture in chapter seven so let's read the text together Proverbs 6 verse 20 my son this is the way he opens all of his lectures to his son this is now the ninth lecture in the first six chapters. The seventh and final lecture of the first nine chapters is chapter seven. But chapter six, verse 20. My son, keep your father's commandment and forsake not your mother's teaching. Bind them on your heart always. Tie them around your neck. When you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. And when you awake, they will talk with you. Boy, if I had that experience, haven't you? The commands of our father and our mother in the older years t talking to us. Some of your parents are long gone. They can't talk to you anymore, but they talk to you, don't you? You get in a situation, you think, my mama would say this. My daddy would teach me this. That's what he's saying. They'll teach you when you, when, you're, when you wake up. They'll talk to you. 
For the commandment is a lamp, and the teaching a light, and the reproofs of discipline are the way of life, to preserve you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Zarah is the uh, Hebrew, and, uh, and it speaks of a married woman that is a prostitute. Remember, almost all prostitutes in the ancient world were married. They were almost always married. They were almost always wives of businessmen who traveled or poor men who could not support their families. And so they were making a living for their family. My teaching will keep you out of the hands of a, of a desperate woman, an adulterous woman, a prostitute. Do not desire her beauty in your heart. And do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. Uh, glances. Eyelashes is interesting. It's the eyelids. is translated in Song of Solomon as eyelids, eyelashes. It's really talking about the glances that she gives. The seductive eyes. The bedroom eyes, as they're called. For the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread. Um, some believe this should be translated... A prostitute leaves a man with only a loaf of bread. I don't agree with that. I think the ESV gets it right. Uh, the NASB gets it right. Uh, the New King James gets it right in the sense that it's the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread. But a married woman hunts down a precious, precious life. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? The flowing garment that would have been worn in that day by the men. That the, the, we don't have anything to. It's like an overcoat uh, is the best you think. But this was a very pricely gown that was worn by men in their society. And, and what he's saying is, can you? And it had a huge pocket in the front, like one of those old aprons that you wear around the wood shop. It's got a big pocket. That's what this robe had was a big pocket. And what it's saying is, can you stick coals from a burning fire in that front pocket and not burn yourself? That's the foolishness. Well, because I'm putting it in the front pocket there, it won't burn me. Oh, just get it close, but not on me. See how it's foolish. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched or seared or scarred for life? What you're thinking about doing with that prostitute sounds good, looks good, but it will scar you for the rest of your life. That's the result. That, that's what the Hebrews telling us. Scorched. So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his appetite when he's hungry. But if he is caught, he will pay sevenfold. He will give all the goods of his house. He who commits adultery lacks sense because he's not like the man who stole to stay alive. He's not, nobody despises a man starving to death that takes bread just enough to eat and live, but if he's caught, he still pays a price for it. But everybody despises a man that steals another man's wife. Everybody despises him. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor, and his disgrace will not be wiped away. For jealousy makes a man furious, and he will not spare when he takes revenge. He will accept no compensation. He will refuse, though you multiply gifts. 
Now he goes into the next lecture, which is the example. My son, keep my words and treasure up my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teachings as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister, my closest companion. And call in sight your intimate friend to keep you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress, that same word, Zorah. With her smooth words, for at the window, here's the example, at the window of my house, I've looked out through my lattice, and I have seen among the simple, I have perceived among the youth, a young man lacking sense. Passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house in the twilight in the evening, at the time of night in darkness, and behold, the woman meets him. Dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart, she is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. Now in the street, now in the market, and at every corner she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him, and with bold face she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices, and today I've paid my vow. So now I've come out to meet you. To seek you eagerly. And I have found you. I have spread my couch with coverings. Colored linens from Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloe, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. For my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him. At full moon he will come home. He's going to be gone a month. We can't get caught. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once, all at once, in the Hebrew, the idea is without a thought, suddenly. All at once, he follows her. As an ox goes to the slaughter, as a stag is caught fast, till an arrow pierces its liver, As a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. And now, O sons, listen to me and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many a victim has she laid low. And all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. First of all, in this passage, in verse six, I mean chapter six, verses twenty through twenty-four, and verses seven, one through five, the two introductions are here. We should heed the teaching of the wise because they are protection against foolishness of adultery. We should heed the teachings of the wise. How many of you young men have had an older man come to you and say, Hey, why are you so friendly with that lady? Why do you Why do you give the hint of flirtatiousness? How many of you women have had an older lady come beside you and talk with you about your immodesty? Talk with you about your flirtatiousness? Talk with you in a loving way about just a suspicion that you kind of got an open door? Maybe you do, maybe you don't, but this is how it looks to us. How many of you have received that kind of instruction? The Father says a wise person takes that in and makes it the treasure of their life. That's what he's getting at. If you want to know what, what explains bind it around your neck, 
Put it on your fingers. Lock it away in your heart. Make it the treasure of your life. In the ancient world, in, e in e Israel, they had uh, these pendants that they wore around their neck. It was the seal of their house. It was the most precious of all possessions. It was like a stamp. It was the family name. And what he's saying is, my teachings, should, your mother's instructions should be just like that. Just like you wouldn't give someone your pendant, don't give away these teachings. Don't treat them like they mean nothing. Treasure them, children. Children, when your parents talk with you about sex, listen to them. Parents, teach them. When your Sunday school teacher talks with you about modesty, young women, she's not doing that because she's an old fuddy-dud. She might be talking to you like someone who's made the mistakes you're about to make. And she's saying, don't do what I did. Don't fail like I failed. Parents, don't let past sin stop you from speaking to your children about sexual sin. I've heard so many foolish sayings like, well, I did it when I was young. Who cares? If you picked up a rattlesnake when you were a kid and it bit you and your hand almost rotted off, would you just tell your son, well, I played with him when I was a kid. He's got to live and learn. That's the kind of foolishness we're doing in this society. Well, kids are kids. Boys are boys. No, they're not. No. We should never relent to the pressure of our society to say sex before marriage is just the norm. Get them some protection. And let them have their fun as youth. That, this father says just the opposite. Take my teachings and wrap them around your neck and bind them in your heart and write them on your hands so that every day you see them. They're right there in front of you. Everything you do with your hands, it's right there. Before you touch that woman you shouldn't touch, my teachings are right there in front of you. Listen, listen. There is forgiveness for sexual sin. The cross is bigger than adultery. But why would you burn yourself? And why would you destroy yourself so that the grace of God might abound? Paul says, may it never be. So let's plead with our children. Let's instruct our youth. Let's live lives that are exemplary for our sons. Let's teach them at home. And let's talk about it in church. Hey, Listen, some of you have said, I can't believe you talked about sex. When I went to church as a kid, we never talked about sex. I know that's the problem. The world's talking about it. They go to school, and school's going to educate them in it. We better be talking, right? Teaching. Giving them something to treasure in their life. That's, that's what he's teaching in this instruction in chapter 6, verse 23. 20. Four is bind them on your hearts, hang them around your neck, treasure them. Now, why should you treasure them? Why should you treasure them? What good is it to treasure my mom and dad's teaching on this subject? Look what he says. Because it will guide you in every place in your life. That's why. Look what he says in verse uh, 22. When you walk, when you lie down, when you wake up, that's the Old Testament of equivalent of Everywhere you go and everything you do, these instructions will keep you. Deuteronomy, what does it say? Parents of Israel, 
teach your children when? When they rise up, when they lay down, when they walk along the way. It's the same formula. All of life should be this way. I never will forget. Now, I'm not trying to be graphic, but I never will forget. One of the greatest things about deer hunting growing up, my dad taught a lot about the birds and bees when we deer hunted. A lesson that rang through my ears was in December, late December, early January. You know what they call that? The rut. You know what that means? Deer have, male deer have one thing on their mind. And they get really stupid. And the trophies, the trophy deer that have survived eight, nine years, they get killed in about a two-week period. The rest of the year, they're phantoms. You can't see them. You see sign of them, but you never see them. What happens is their drive is bigger than their common sense. And what this dad is saying is, son, my teachings, when that drive is driving you, will keep you from heartache. They will save you. We are believing the lie of Satan when we say, hey, in the heat of the moment, what I've told him at home won't matter. Yes, it will. Is it perfect? Do kids that get taught still make mistakes and still trail off the path? Yes. But, but that's, like, that's like playing with dynamite to not teach them. I can almost guarantee you they're going to get blown up. So teach them and then have grace with them if they fail. Love them and teach them about the way of salvation through Christ over their sexual sin. But don't just give in from the get-go and say, well, it's, let it be what it is. That's not what this dad does. Don't let your past sin overcome you so that you can't train your children. Righteous living comes to us through the teaching of godly parents and it protects us on the way of life to keep us from ungodly actions with women. Look what it says in verses 23 and 24. The way of life is protected by the commands, the teachings, and the reproofs of discipline. What does it do on the way of life? It preserves us from the ungodly woman and from the, adult, the seductive adulterer. These teachings do. So in the introduction in chapter 7, it's the same thing. Look what it says. Treasure up my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live the way of life. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. That, that's, a, that's a parochial statement to say the center of life, the thing you most want, the things you love greater than anything. Bind them on your fingers, like I said, so you won't touch wrong things. Write them on your heart where the law of God belongs. So do my teachings, he's saying. Treat wisdom as your closest companion. So in the introduction of these two speeches, the Father lays out a protection for all of life against sexual sin that should be treasured, be treasured by the Son. Secondly, we see in this passage, we should not be enticed by the outward beauty of, of a seductive person because the cost of sexual sin is your reputation, it is your standing in the community, and it is your very life. The cost of that 15 minutes of enjoyment is a life that is derailed and often destroyed. In our day, how many men in public life have been destroyed? I was standing right over in front of the golf pro shop 
in the spring last year. Some of you were there. I think Adam and Alan, I, Adam, Alan and I stood together at Herman Cain's rally. As he talked, I just got to be honest with you. I was energized. I thought, this guy's got a plan. This guy has hope. He's bringing a message that will help America and heal America one day later. His years-long adultery caught up with him. It will cost you your name. It will cost you your standing. And it could cost you your life. And that's not meant to bash Herman Cain. That's just reality. Some of us don't have the platform he had, so our enemies don't seek to destroy us like his do. But some of you won't run for public office because you're scared. The same thing could come out about you. How many, we often think, where are the good leaders today? Where are the men who will stand up and take the hold of the horns and lead a lot of them? No. If I put my hat in the ring, my sexual indiscretions will come out and it will destroy me. They can't lead. The lives are destroyed. Hey, football fans, how fast, how fast can 50 years of history be flushed? of sexual indiscretion and how devastating for a general at the highest level of leadership and a character man be brought down it will take your name it will take your standing it can take your life you got to ask yourself, is she that pretty? Is it that much fun? This dad says no. This dad says no. Can there be forgiveness? Yes. But that forgiveness comes at a high price. And that grace covers over a deep wound. And it will scar you for the rest of your life. You may walk over the coals of adultery, and God may repair your marriage. And you may keep a lot of your standing, but your feet forever will be scorched. And that's not to throw stones at anybody here. Listen, some of you have committed sexual sin. Some of you have confessed that. Some of you haven't. Some of you may be found out later, and some of you have already been found out. There is forgiveness in Christ. He came for the adulterers. When the adulteress was thrown at his feet, he extended great grace. But listen to me, to whom much is forgiven, much worship is brought forward, but the tears that washed his feet were real painful tears. She knew what it cost Christ to forgive her sin. So I'm just warning you, if you're not there yet, if you're thinking about it, don't do it. Get help. Get counseling. Run. Do whatever it takes. Because you can't walk across hot coals without scorching yourself. You can't take your 
your friend's wife without being punished. You're not a starving man. You don't have an excuse. You can't say, if I don't eat this, I won't live. Yes, you can live. I would just say, men, you've got to be honest with your wife about your sexual desires. And ladies, you've got to show grace to him. Because if not, he was like a hungry man. A hungry man can't keep walking past a banquet. In his fallenness, he will, he will partake. Whether it's physical or mental or whatever, he will partake. So I just leave that instruction with you. We have to run from seductive people because they will entice us with their outward beauty and they will cost us our name, our reputation, our standing, our life. For jealousy makes a man furious, verse 34, and he will not spare when he takes revenge. He will accept no compensation. He will refuse, though you multiply gifts. All of the reports are not in But yesterday, you may have read about the linebacker for the Kansas City Chiefs. Killed his girlfriend. And he went to the football complex and called his football coach and his general manager. Thanked them for the opportunity they'd given. And he took his own life. Early reports are the squabbles in their life centered around sexual sin. Don't scoff at the scripture when it says it will cost you your life. Many are those who have sunk in the deep depression over this very area and been, they've not been able to withstand. They've not been able to hold up under the weight of it, the guilt of it, the shame of it. It's real. And there are resources. If you're there, some of you behind your eyes, you may be there. You may be saying, man, I, I'm not... You didn't groan because you thought, I could never do that. You groaned because you said, I can understand. I've been thinking a lot of those thoughts. We have help for you. I know good people who can help you. We have a deacon in our church who specializes in this very thing. And he can help you. There is hope. But the best hope is the relief God offers in the goodness of instruction to stay out of it to begin with. Okay? Now, quickly. How do we close? The personal example of Solomon. And I say it's personal because, listen, I said earlier, if you're guilty of sexual sin, you're a parent, often what you say is, I can't teach them this because I've sinned, I've failed. I want you to think with me, who is Solomon? Who is Solomon? A man who not only committed sexual sin, but he committed it in the hundreds. He didn't have a concubine He had 700 of them and 300 wives. And he scoffed in the face of God, really, saying, yeah, I can't have one foreign woman. I'll just take a thousand times that. So I promise you, you have not failed practically the way Solomon failed. But it didn't stop him from telling his son, don't be like me. Don't be like me, son. Don't make my mistakes. Look what he does in chapter 7. I think it's his own, 
I think it's his own story. Now, that's my, my, from studying it, praying about it, I think it's his own story. He says, at the window of my house, that's, a, that's an interesting phrase. Because the house often, if you know, was, was about, their, it was their picture for their life, right? Their, their home was like their life. And it, through the window of experience, I looked and I saw a young man. Now, this is old Solomon talking, I think, about himself. Maybe there was a young man he saw, but probably not in, in their day. You think about how far he would have had to look to see someone doing this from his window in the palace. I mean, it's not like there was next-door neighbors to the king. They just built their house right next door on the same city block, right? And there was a wall around it, and there was all this. So what's he saying? I think what he's saying is, from my life experience, son, let me tell you, I see what I did. I, I start, look what he did. I, I, I looked out, and I saw this simple youth that was lacking good sense. The wisest man in the world, outside of Christ and Adam, says, I, did, I lacked good sense. I, going along the street near her corner, notice how sin entraps us. He, he knew that's where the corner, where the prostitute was, and so he just said, I'm going to get close to it. I remember we used to go to New Orleans for class, and all my buddies, I'm not trying to out anybody by person. If they're listening to this on the internet, guys, I'm not going to use your name. Relax. All my buddies, every time we went down there, you know what they said? Let's just, let's just, let's just walk down. Dave knows. <laughs> let's just walk down and, 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 and go down that infamous street in New Orleans at night. Let's just walk down there. And, and inevitably, we'd be at Cafe Du Monde. Right there, looking at Jackson Square, and that, that's what, that was the last, that was like, it's 11 o'clock at night, and what these guys want to do is walk down the street at Bourbon Street. Just walk down. I, we're not going to do anything. We're just going to walk down it and then go get in the car and go home. I can remember thinking in my flesh, well, there's nothing wrong with walking down the street. I mean, what's bad's going to happen immediately? It's like that bad angel, good angel thing. Immediately, conscience says, don't do it. Many a fool started at the mouth of Bourbon Street with nothing on his mind but walking through and just taking in the atmosphere and found himself at the madam's home. And his career over. And his family destroyed. I see a young man lacks good sense and he, he just takes a bypass by the street corner where she stands. We don't know if any time passes. Maybe he saw this happen in his own life over and over again. But look what he, what he sees. He not only began to walk by the street corner, but then he started taking the road to her house. In the, then it was in the twilight. You see how sin's progressive. You give it mental play in your mind. You start thinking things in your mind. You think, I'll never act on this. Don't trust yourself. That's what, that's what Solomon said. Don't trust yourself. Because I just started out going by, and then I started taking the road. Then it was almost nighttime. What happened? He put himself in the position of sin, and what happened? Sin grabbed him. The woman was dressed, and she was guarded in heart. What it means is wily of heart. It doesn't mean she's like wily coyote. It means that what she is is guarded in her heart. What does that mean? 
she's willing to give you sexual favors, but not herself. If you're in an affair this morning, an adulterous relationship, and you think the person loves you, you are sadly mistaken. They do not love you. They whisper sweet nothings to you to keep you coming back for more, but they guard their heart at all costs. They give you their body and not covenant relationship. Sex is the seal of the covenant bond between a man and a woman, and that's why it's sacred before God. And in an adultery, I don't care what they tell you, they do not trust you, love you, want you above all things. They simply want to use you, and that's both man and woman. Either they need you to make themselves feel better or they want you because you're a prize to them or it's a game that they, that's what I think is going on with this prostitute. It's a game. Let's see who I can catch today. Let's see who I can entrap today. And in, in, in the heart of that adulteress is a guard that stands that keeps, she won't give you herself emotionally, spiritually. She locks that away. She gives you the body but not the rest. It's low rate. It's worthless. He goes on describing for time's sake, we won't go through it all, but she becomes the aggressor. See, he was the aggressor, now she's become the aggressor, and he can't withstand. She starts kissing him. She starts calling out to him, come, come to me. I've prepared this great feast of sexual pleasure that we can have till the morning. Come on, my husband's not coming home. He won't be here for a month. There's no way we will get caught. No one will ever see it. In chapter 6, he said, you always get caught. You always get caught. Finally, the seductive speech persuades him. It overcomes him. He can't withstand it. That word persuade means it's just too strong a pull. He can't walk away. He's compelled by her talk. And look at that in verse 22. That's the saddest phrase in the whole text. I think Solomon spoke it about himself. All at once the dam broke and I couldn't stop. And although I knew I was like an ox to the slaughter, a stag to the trap, I had to have it. Finally, in verse 24, he says, Be attentive to my words. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many victims she laid low, and all her slain are mighty throng. Her house is the way of death, Sheol, the grave. You'll be going down to that if you go to her. So what hope is there? Some of you have already committed this sin. Some of you need, in the protection of, of, of Christian brother and Christian sister, you need to work through some marital problems that you've never confessed. And you think, I'm safer not to tell. I, I'm safer if I just can keep it hidden. I just remind you of the warning of Solomon. It never goes without being caught. In this life or at the judgment seat, it will come forward. So why not now? Why not now? 
Because as great as this sin is, it is not the sin that cannot be forgiven. Both in marriage and by Christ. How can we be so certain he will forgive us if we've committed sexual sin? Israel, God's great bride, not only committed adultery one time, but she committed adultery repetitively. Continually. And God embraced her. How do I know he'll take you back? Because the book of Hosea is in the scripture. And though she was a prostitute, Hosea loved her. As a picture of what God would do for his people. How do I know he will have grace towards the adulterer and adulteress? Because when Jesus Christ bled and died for you as his child... He did not set aside certain sins and say, I can't, that's too much. He embraced them all, and he paid for them all. And he opened the way to the holy God by his wounds. There is forgiveness. So one application of the sermon is, if you're already guilty, confess. To God and to your spouse, confess. Seek help and reestablishment in your marriage bond. Second application is, if you have not committed this sin, but it's on your mind, take warning. Take warning. It's not worth it. And get help. Seek counsel from Christ, from His Word, and from a pastor, from one of our deacons, from someone you trust. Third application, children, you're young, guard your thoughts and your mind and what you put in your heart as a little one because it lays the path of your future activity. You think what you're watching on TV is not a big deal? Trust me, it is. The older I get, the more I agree with Malcolm Muggridge on a lot of things, but he said, The problem with TV is the advertising. Many of us are watching events, not bad things, but the commercials need to be churned because they're planting seeds in both us and our children. So children, don't fill your mind with filth at a young age. It lays a path towards sinful destruction. And finally, if you are an adulterer, adulteress, not an adulterer or an adulteress, there is one who has paid the price for you. So you have no right to look at that one who has sinned and say, I'm better than them. I got one up on them. That guy's a dirt bag. He treated his wife awful. I'm better. No. No. Without the grace of God, there go I. That should be our thoughts. And at the end of a sermon on adultery, what better way to end than to say, the altar's open to communion with a living God who loves us, who has given himself for us, and who receives us as a family.